of the many gods worshipped in ancient Rome, one of the most fascinating to me was the goddess Vesta, goddess of hearth and home. The priestesses of Vesta were known as Vestal Virgins, chosen at the early age of six years old and sworn to celibacy for 30-year term of service. Their temple was located right in the Forum, the center of life and activity in ancient Rome. The Vestal Virgins held very sacred duties. Their main responsibility was to keep the sacred fire to Vesta burning constantly. From this fire, anyone could obtain fire for their own household. They were like virtual housekeepers for all of Rome in a religious sense. In ancient Rome, they were held in awe and attributed certain magical powers. A certain prayer could arrest a runaway slave. At a time when religion was prominent, their pageantry was included and their presence was always desired. Augustus included the Vestals in all major dedications and ceremonies. They were transported in a carpentum, a two-wheeled covered carriage, and had the right-of-way anywhere they went in the city. They were always protected and escorted wherever they went. They had the power to free a condemned prisoner or a slave just by touching them. In fact, if a prisoner saw them on their way to their death sentence, they would be immediately freed. But if that sacred fire ever went out, it was believed the goddesses removed their protection from the city, a very serious offense, and the vessels would be punished with a severe beating. Even worse, if a vestal ever broke her oath, the punishment was to be buried alive. They were taken to an underground chamber, supplied with a few days of food and water, let down by a ladder, which was then removed, and they were left to perish. In the 12th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, he urges them to offer their bodies as living sacrifices, saying this is pleasing to God and a spiritual act of worship. Certainly a foreign idea to our modern ears, but as we begin to explore ancient Roman times, we learn so much more that helps us understand what Paul was writing about. You see, the people of ancient Rome were very religious. They had daily sacrifices in their temples, public, and in their homes, they served multiple gods, and they focus particularly on ritual, that is, doing the act of worship correctly, was what made the gods happy. The gods weren't so concerned about morality or how you lived your daily life, but rather they were concerned that you offered your sacrifices correctly. People would have seen animals, that were put on altars throughout the city for various festivals and celebrations. It was a common sight in Rome. Rome, you see, was taking on all of the gods and the religions of the lands that it had conquered. One of the most influential 
of Roman culture was the Greek culture. Paul had earlier visited Athens and had walked through their market square in downtown Athens and saw all the different idols to all the different gods. In fact, at one point, Paul honed in on an altar with an inscription that said, to an unknown God. And Paul used that to launch into a speech to the Greeks there, telling them that this unknown God was a God he wanted to proclaim to them. See, what Paul was doing was introducing a new kind of God and a new kind of worship. And Paul said, this God did not live in temples built by human hands. And he did not need to be served by human hands. There was nothing that this God needed. Rather, this God gave life, gave life to everyone. And this God was within us, or this God gave us our being itself. And so Paul was introducing a new way of worship, saying, this God doesn't care about how you worship. This God doesn't care about how you go about your sacrifices. But this God wants you to give your daily life as a sacrifice. That is the best thing that you can do is live your life as a reflection of God's love. He called it a living sacrifice. All right, so the 12th chapter, we are making our way through the, the Paul's letter to the Romans. And uh, if you've been reading along, as I said last week, you may have gotten to a spot where it was got confusing. Um, and if you made your way this far, all of a sudden, uh, the 12th chapter, the 13th chapter, it gets incredibly practical. Um, some of the things that Paul says and writes are the kind of things that you would, you would say to your, your son or your daughter as they were heading off to college. Hopefully there were reminders by this point, but things, you know, like uh, don't repay evil for evil, or as we would say today, two wrongs don't make a... Anybody get that one growing up? Um, at least that was usually when my brother hit me, and then I was ready to hit him back, my mom would always say, two wrongs don't make a, they don't make it right. Um, or, or it says in there, you know, don't take revenge, but let God handle that stuff. And don't be bitter. And all the kind of things that, we, that we've taken into our own culture and society today that we think this is a, this is a better way to live our life. But I want to read again Romans 12 and just set the, contract, uh, the, the contrast with what was going on in the day 2,000 years ago when this was first written down. I remember as a youngster going to church when I was in high school, and this was one of the verses and one of the sections that, that grabbed a hold of me the most. Romans 12, 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Um, 
a living sacrifice, that would have jumped off the page. If the letter was being read, they had all seen sacrifices, but there were no living sacrifices. In fact, um, what we know about how sacrifices worked in Rome and in that culture, even in the Jewish context, sacrifices were still, you had to have a, you had to have a, a, a good animal, a holy one, um, one without blemish. So when Paul says your sacrifice should be holy, that would have been, that would have been similar. You, you don't bring a sacrifice of an animal that's maimed. You don't, in other words, you don't offer to the gods um, your worst goat. This one's about to kick it anyway. It was like the gods could see through that, you know. This one's not giving out any milk anyway, and she got one foot in the grave, send her up there, right? No, you pick the best one, the one without the blemish. That's the one that you picked. And what Paul is doing, everybody got to dial in. What Paul was doing was offering a completely new system of worship, completely new. Paul was offering a completely new kind of God and a new kind of worship. What people knew back then was called quid pro quo. One, two, three, quid pro quo. You hear about it in like shady uh, business dealings or shady politics or something like that. That's actually a Latin term and it means favor for a favor or something for something. That's what it means. But it came out of their religious system. So how it worked was this. You went to the altar, you went to the temple, and there was an altar in front outside, and you brought your sacrifice. And when you brought your sacrifice, it was quid pro quo. It was a favor. The gods needed something in return. It was an exchange. You wanted something from them. You wanted them to bless the, the fall harvest. You wanted, uh, you wanted to have victory in battle. Whatever the thing was you were requesting, you would go to the particular God that handled that kind of thing. You know the saying, I have a guy for that? They would say, I have a God for that, right? And you would go and they would handle it. And you would bring the offering and it was an exchange. It was an understood that I'm going to give this to you and you are going to do this for me. And Paul's saying, <clears throat> there's something different. The system that God has is different. In fact, as he closed out the 11th, what we now call the 11th chapter, there's this phrase in there. And this, this kind of gives you the clue. Paul says, who of us, 1135, has ever given to God that God should repay him. This was new. Now, it makes perfect sense when you think about it. Like, who here could ever say, I've given something to God? But we say things like that. Perhaps we haven't thought it through all the way. Perhaps it's a bit like, anybody ever see this one? Like, you know, the parents go to the mall and you got like, this will probably happen this year. You know, Charlie's three and she's, maybe she's going to buy a, a present for her mom. Dad, Let's get a present for mom. Charlie, you should buy her one. Good idea, dad. <laughs> right? And probably later on, she's going to probably buy a present for dad. And mom's going to reach in dad's wallet and pull money out and give it to her. <laughs> Has any three-year-old ever given anything to their dad? 
Has any human ever given anything to God? No. No, Paul's saying. But you have to understand, this was a new idea. This was groundbreaking. In other words, he says, 1135, who has ever given to God that God should repay? There's the key word, repay, quid pro quo. That's how it was. And so Paul says, I have an idea. Perhaps God doesn't need all of these bulls and all of this blood and these sheep. Perhaps God wants a living sacrifice. Now, that would have really popped. For instance, um, in that day, if you brought your, you brought your bull up to the altar for the sacrifice and it was very, it was, it was known that if there was a struggle, if, they, if you saw if the animal was resisting, it was a bad sign. And if on some occasion the animal wrestled free and escaped alive, the sacrifice, this was a total disaster. So when Paul talks about a living sacrifice, he's grabbing their ears. What? a sacrifice that is alive. But what's Paul trying to say? And why does it matter today? I think it matters because I think what Paul was saying is God doesn't need any of that stuff. But rather, God wants something from us. God doesn't need any more dead animals. God needs living humans who do the kinds of things that he writes about where he says, you are a living sacrifice, that your daily life, the way that you treat other people, that's what pleases God. I mean, if you think about it, wouldn't it be kind of weird if you know, you're a parent and you gave things to your kids all the time and I'm sure all parents appreciate being appreciated, right? They appreciate maybe somehow being acknowledged, but the reality is kids don't have a clue what you do for them. I got time. They don't have a clue, right? And the reality is when you were a kid, you didn't have a clue either. We were talking about this the other day, Vicky and I, and I say, you know, I got to be honest, Vicky, because I, I remember as I think back to you know, myself in my 20s even, you know. I mean, it, it, I mean, not even my spoiled, rotten teenage years, you know, but even in, in my 20s, I think I just didn't, I didn't think about my parents enough. I, I didn't think bad of them at all. I, I, I always thought, you know, in my head they were great, but I sure didn't express it. I sure didn't show it. I sure didn't reach out. I sure didn't appreciate. I just wasn't mature enough to get it. Anybody in my neighborhood? You got to start to get older and you start to appreciate what they have done for you. You know, eking out a thank you after the 20th Christmas present that you unwrapped, that's not gratitude, friends. That's just common sense. So you can open present 21, right? I mean, in other words, this, the way we understand it is this. If you start to wake up and you realize what someone has done for you, so Paul writes this. 
This system is not quid pro quo. God's not waiting to see how you did your sacrifice so he can decide whether to bless you or not to bless you. But the funny thing is, 2,000 years later, we still have religious quid pro quo, carryover. Huh? You've done it. God, please just get me through this interview. I'll do anything. God, just say, huh? God, if you just, who's ever done this prayer? God, if you just get me through this, I will give you what? And God's like, oh, good, I so needed that. <laughs> you know, what was I going to do if you wouldn't have promised me that? Isn't this, is this silly? And here it is. We're still doing it 2,000 years later. First thing, let's get this, let's get this clean. God doesn't need anything you got. Nothing. We got to get the needy God out of the picture. Unfortunately, I think some of us grew up with a needy God. You know, maybe your pastor or your priest or somebody kind of told you somewhere along the way that there were all these things that you could do to make God happy. The pouting God. The poor God that needed stuff. Does anybody like a pouting grandpa? Huh? No, but what you, what you are drawn to are the ones that are they're good, they're happy, they're sufficient, they're, they're whole in themselves. God is whole in himself. He doesn't need anything from us. He's the eternal giver. He's the fountain of giving. He just gives. Why, why can you give? You can give because you're full. If I had a lot of time, I would talk about how the, the, the Trinitarian idea of God works, of the pouring out, there's this constant giving it's just constant pouring out. But God, think of God as this fountain of life that just keeps giving. And what you and I do is we get to drink from that fountain. This is a completely different way. A way that we need to embrace today. Because I tell you what, if you understood this, when you wake up and you realize how blessed you've been, in view of, Paul says, God's mercy, the mercy of God. Wasn't it a while back I was doing a whole series talking about the mercy of God is that our, our planet Earth is just the right distance from the sun? A mercy every single morning, every single day, every breath that we draw is God's mercy. And when you get it, you, what you realize is, I don't need to give God any animal sacrifices, but if I could treat other people well, that could be pleasing to God. That, he says, is your spiritual act. In other words, it's kind of like this. Think of it this way. He's sort of taken the religious part out of it, all these rituals and exchanges. And, and I know I'm doing myself no favors here, but you know, people have put too much... Emphasis on making God happy by the prayers or the, or the baptisms or the, all these things. And here's what God really wants. And what Paul kept writing over and over and over again. He says, what, what I really want is for you to take your religion and turn it into relationship. How you treat people. That's what makes God happy. Or give the example from a home, you know, if it's Christmas morning and, yeah, you would appreciate if your kids say thank you for the gifts, but what would you really appreciate, mom and dad, if they don't kill each other by noon? <laughs> I mean, really, the thing that makes you happiest if they all played nice all morning. 
Is this true? They didn't argue. They just stopped fighting and hitting back at each other. Just, just be nice to each other. It'd be nice if they got you another tie, Dad, sure. But what would you love? To sit back at Christmas and just watch them enjoy each other. What does our Heavenly Father want? Does he need our gifts? Does he need blood? Does he? No. He wants us to live our lives in a way. And he goes through this list. I'm going to rattle a couple of them off for you. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. No, no, you go. No, you go. Be joyful in hope. Share with God's people who are in need. Share. Does anybody think these are bad ideas? I mean, even if you don't go to church, you know, even if you're atheist, you know, Alex in the eighth row, is that a bad idea? Share with one another. Practice hospitality. I mean, by now, our culture has grown to embrace that all of these are, these are just good ways to live your life. Don't repay evil for evil. Look at this one. As far as it is possible, as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's not always possible to live at peace, but as, as much as it's possible, be the peaceful party. That makes sense. And then it's like it comes, it comes to a climax when he says this. He says, now, all the commandments, there's one, one rule that sums it all up. Love your neighbor as yourself. How do you sum up all religion? Paul said, love your neighbor. Love, he says, does no harm to its neighbor. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You mean to sum it all up, it's don't hurt each other? That's pleasing to God? No bulls, no sacrifices, no rituals. I think Paul was saying that's what God's been trying to teach us. I think Paul's letter to the Romans was much like his trip to Athens where he was trying to introduce this unknown God because they, this was a foreign idea to them. And it surely took some time for all of this to set in. But Paul wrote this, be changed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, how is it that you and I change? You've got to change this. If you're going to change your life, you have to change the way that you think. You're never going to change if you don't change this. It all starts here. Be transformed by renewing, rethinking your mind. Uh, this morning we had to change the clocks. Hey, anybody in a better mood because you got an hour? Are you in a better mood? And then, you know, like, I got to change the clock, so let's get them changed so we don't screw up. And so um, I was telling Vicki, hey, I'll do this one, but, uh, you know, she says, well, do it for, uh, she wanted to, like, like, 
15 minutes early. You know, set it for 15 minutes so we're not late anywhere. I'm like, no, what? That doesn't make any sense because then in your head you're going to go, I know that's 15 minutes early and it doesn't matter anyway. Right? <laughs> I said, what we need to change is this. Is this what we need to change? This is the thing that tells you when to get where. Be, tra be transformed by renewing your mind, renewing the way that you think. If you and I continue to think the bad thoughts, you're just going to have the wrong actions. The most important thing that you can pay attention to is your mind and how you think. And so Paul's letter, the whole thing that we're studying was trying to get people to think differently. Think about God differently. Think about life differently. Because if you thought differently, then naturally you act differently. He was trying to change the system. Like, you ever go, you ever go, uh, you know, wherever you go, there's a system. There's a way, the way things work. And in, in we just explained, this is how they worked in Rome. Um, you go to get a job. You get a new job. And you walk in there and you got to figure out, oh, this is how it works. If you're late to a meeting here, you're going to get your head bit off. And you learn that day three. And you're like, okay, note to self, don't be late here. Um, if you... Uh, Don't email your boss when he emails you, then this is good. You learn the system. You go golfing. Some people invite you golfing. You've never been golfing with these people before. You know, and you're, you're kind of, when you get in there, you're like, what's the system? Because there's different ways to golf. If, if you've been around, there's different ways people golf. There's, there's the, there is the uh, breakfast ball, gimme, mulligan golfers. You, you know what I mean? It's like, They just line it up and hit it, and they, they laugh because that one's in the water, and then they hit another one, and they call it a breakfast ball, and then they call it a mulligan and a gimme. There's all kind of golfers, and, and when you get out there, you don't know. You know, your, your ball's like this far from the hole, and you kind of look around. Is that gimme? Do I pick it up? And then you got the stingy crowd. You don't pick up anything. You know, they don't give you anything. When you get there, you go, what's the system? How does this work at work? How does this work over here? What's the system that God works under? Quid pro quo? You say enough prayers? You attend church enough? You do all the things just right, and therefore God owes you something? By the way, if you've done it, you've been disappointed too. Or is there a different system? The system is God's constant outpouring love. Jesus died on the cross and it became, uh, for the Christians, the last sacrifice. The outpouring of love, right there. And God was seen as his constant outpouring of love in all of us drinking from the fountain of his grace. And the only thing that God wanted, our spiritual act of worship, was what? To love our neighbor as ourself. That is a spiritual act of worship. Does your heart good to know that God's not so needy? But that's not how people lived back then. It was very much believed that if you didn't do the sacrifice right, God wasn't going to be good to you. 
And if you had done something wrong, something's going wrong in your life, it was because you did something wrong in one of your religious ceremonies. Coincidentally, they didn't care so much how you treated other people. The gods weren't interested in that. You see, those gods were very, they had a lot of human characteristics. They were temperamental. They were moody. (laughs) Anybody here moody? And so that's how they thought these gods were. And so for Paul to project a God, how many, how many are glad that God's not moody? Man. I mean, can't you be a piece of work some days? Can't you? Oh, man. Am I something today? But God's not that way. He's not all offended. The other day we go to pick Charlie up from school. I go, Charlie, I'm so excited. She's like, I'm so excited. She goes like this, mommy. <laughs> I got a little moody. I'm not gonna lie. Daddy, can you help me in my seat? No, get in your own seat, I said. Get in your seat. Get in your own seat. <laughs> Can we go get something special? No. I ain't getting nothing special. Probably for like a month. I ain't getting anything special. It's weird, but you know, the whole thing, you know, we're just, all we're trying to say today is God is good. That's really all we're trying to say. But I mean, to the core good, you know? He doesn't need anything from us. He's not moody. He's not tired. It's a fountain of life and love. And once you really drink it, in view, if you have that view of how merciful God is, then you can't help. You just can't help. See, churches and religion, it shouldn't be about me trying to talk you into doing something for God. What it should be doing is getting you to drink. And if you drink it, all downhill if you drink the goodness of God if you taste it I don't have to give you any instructions at all you just got to follow your heart then but not enough of us have drank taste and see that the Lord is good once you taste once you taste it's all downhill let's stand we'll have a closing prayer